when I think about defining moments, I always remember the story of Henry Dempsey. The story was told on the evening news, CBS, with Dan Rather, 1987. Some of us were still in high school. Not me, but others were in high school at that time. It's the story of Henry Dempsey, the pilot, who um, was in an airplane accident that took place near Portland, Maine. On this day, the captain, Henry, um, was flying for Eastern Express, a commuter flight from Lewiston, Maine to Boston, flying at an altitude of 4,000 feet. Captain Dempsey heard an unusual noise which seemed to be coming from the rear of the 15-passenger turboprop plane. Well, he turned the controls over to his second-in-command and went back to check things. Dempsey made it to the back of the plane, um, to the tail section, where the, when the plane hit some turbulence, the air pocket which caused the plane to jolt through pilot Dempsey against the rear of the aircraft, the rear door, that's when Dempsey discovered the source of the noise. Apparently, the rear door had not been properly secured. So Dempsey discovered this when he stumbled against the door. It flew open, and he was sucked out the back of the plane. When an emergency light indicating an open door flashed, the co-pilot immediately radioed to the nearest airport and requested permission to land and then also to make um, sure that they got helicopters and planes and boats to scramble to that specific area to make a search for Captain Dempsey. The helicopters and search and rescue teams um, never found Dempsey because he wasn't in the ocean. They did find him after landing, however. He had caught the rail when the door came open, and the ladder flipped down, and as he was being sucked out of the aircraft, he caught the rail. He held on face downward as the plane flew at 200 miles per hour. When the plane landed, his face um, came within 12 inches from the concrete runway, and then the plane came to a halt. Dempsey kept holding on after the rescue workers arrived. In fact, they told him, you can let go now. <laughs> but Pilot Dempsey could not let go. It took more than 15 minutes for the rescue workers to pry his hands free from that rail. And every time he reaches to turn the handle of a door, he thinks, what does this mean? Clearly for Dempsey, this was a defining moment in his life. Every door from this moment on would be opened, would be met with a certain amount of anticipation. If you were to look at the defining moments of your life, what has shaped you to be who you are today, what stories or events would you choose? This is a question I ask students um, quite often. I say, list five stories from your life that really just kind of shape 
who you are. They don't like that because either they have too many stories to tell or they can't think of any to tell. Um, but every once in a while, it's good to survey your life or someone else's life and see what events have marked them. In fact, um, it's important to remind ourselves that the Bible itself is a collection of defining moments. In John chapter 20, verse 30, it says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these ones are recorded, these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's meant the stories that are chosen are meant to do something, to say something, to mark a moment. Chapter 21 and verse 25 kind of picks up the same theme. Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Defining moments. So this weekend, um, some students and I are completing the first of five devotionals for young adults for the World Church. This first one is on calling. The other ones are going to be on four other topics, conviction, community, compassion, and commitment. But we're completing this one this weekend, which is probably the reason why I'm using it, because we're all exhausted and I needed something to talk about. So if you're going to get mad at anyone about today's message, get mad at the students. Um, these are really their ideas <laughs> that may seem cowardly, but wait till you hear what they came up with. Um, today's message, we're just going to gather several snapshots, five snapshots from Peter's life. We're choosing five defining moments where Peter is called to do or be something. As we consider these calls, um, it occurred to us that it might be helpful to you as a community of faith, to us, as we gather, that these same calls that Peter experienced might be helpful to us. The first calling of Peter was a call to a meaningful new endeavor. Luke 5 tells the story of Jesus teaching by the lake. His um, multitude, his listeners, the crowd grew, and Jesus had to use Peter's fishing boat for a pulpit while Peter mends his fishing nets. It says in Luke chapter 5, verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Well, to this Simon answers, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. That's my story as a fisherman. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Notice two points in this story. First of all, Peter's new endeavor, this new ministry, this new opportunity with the community of Jesus and the kingdom of God 
This moment is to be discovered when he goes out in faith to do what he does every day. Somewhere in the routine of Peter's life, the normalcy of what he does, what we do every day, a call to an abundant new way awaits. A second point in this story is that Peter can't see this new way, this new endeavor, until he obeys the word of Christ. He says, I have been fishing all day and have caught nothing. Now, rarely do we ever see fishermen admit. We, we rarely see them have this kind of honesty. Um, usually there's some sort of excuse or story about the one that got away. But rarely do they just announce their failure. Peter in this moment is laid bare. The three-letter word becomes a continental divide between an old life and an amazing new life. The word but. The lesson for us is God may call us to a new endeavor, but he often does so by calling us to work, by going to chemistry class, by cleaning the kitchen or teaching kids at school to read and write and do arithmetic. The ordinary routine. But that's where the miraculous catch comes. When he goes back and does what he had already done before but failed at. The second call of Peter is to a significant life contribution. At some point in our lives, in your journey, in our journey, we need to see the big picture. We need to know what it is that we're going to give to this good earth at the end of our days to think about it. What will my contribution be? Now, the thought may be fleeting or it may preoccupy you for five years between the ages of 40 and 40-something. 40 but we will think about what the contribution is. What's the big picture. We need to know what we did. And in Matthew 16, we read how the disciples are asked a question. Jesus says, who, who, who do people say the Son of Man is? Easy answer. They reply. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others say Jeremiah or, or perhaps one of the prophets. That was the easy answer. But what about you? Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In the discipline of education, we learn about this concept called the six-second pause. This is that awkward moment where the teacher asks a question and nobody in the class answers. So after about six seconds, nobody is actually thinking about the question anymore. Everyone is now thinking about who's going to say something, who's going to break the awkward moment, who's going to save this teacher from their bad question. Usually the teacher needs to either restate the question after the six-second pause 
but oftentimes they just answer it and move on in shame. Good thing Peter's in the crowd. Because I don't imagine Peter ever caved in to the six-second pause. Peter answers the question, you are the Christ. And what Jesus declares, what Jesus declares about Peter had to be a defining moment for Peter. These are not your words, Peter, but this is God's revelation in you. This is how my church will build and grow, and even the gates of hell will not win against us. What a prophecy. What a statement. And it seems like this statement is a little over the top, but we all need a big picture. We all need a significant contribution to live for. The third call that comes to Peter during um, his ministry, his life, comes during the time of the Passion. It's a call to a repentant turnaround. And while it's clear that Peter has no problem speaking up, his words often lack credibility because of his actions. They seem to contradict what he says. In Luke 22, verses 31, we read Jesus saying, Simon, Simon. This is right at the table where they're having the Passover meal together. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. First, notice the dreadful honesty as Jesus confronts Peter. Satan has asked for you. <laughs> Satan has a way of getting a foothold and in, in the scriptures he'll um, be called out for it. Back in Cain and Abel's day, God's voice goes to Cain and says, Sin is crouching at your door. Don't let it get to you. Jesus says, Peter, Satan has asked for you, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, knowing full well that Peter was going to fail. Notice that he prayed that Peter's faith would not fail, knowing full well that Peter, in his commitment to Jesus, would fail. In other words, your steps are going to break you, Peter. Those next moves that you're going to make, but I believe ultimately you will prevail. Notice Jesus also declares when and not if you turn around. Did you see that? When we talk like this, we, we give confidence to the person who's listening. When you turn around. Peter, it's a matter of time that you do this. I believe you will. And when you turn around, the idea 
just kind of conveys conversion or repentance. Now, repentance isn't a popular thing to talk about nowadays. I'm not sure it ever has been popular to talk about it. When we talk about repentance, it sounds so judgmental. But what Peter did was a gross betrayal. In our culture, we have a tendency to try and minimize these choices, calling this kind of betrayal a, a lapse in judgment or a confusing moment that you go through. It's betrayal. In fact, what is the difference in the choice that Peter made to deny Jesus and the choice that Judas made to betray him? In fact, Peter actually claimed that not only would he not deny Jesus, but that he would die with him if need be. Which is worse? So in this dark moment, Jesus extends the call to Peter with words that ring with this beautiful truth. In spite of the worst in you, God sees the best. It's not a mindless claim and Jesus... Um, that Jesus demonstrates confidence in Peter, that when Peter turns around, there's a task for him, a, a something to do. For Jesus, the whole situation isn't conditional. It's simply a matter of time. When you turn around, strengthen your brothers. In other words, you've been so strong, Peter, so brave, so loyal, so outspoken, but when you fail like this, you can't just compliment a person back into wholeness. You don't just say, it's okay. They need to be competent. They need to succeed. Confidence, not compliments. <laughs> they don't need flattery. They need to become skilled, experienced, tested, and approved. I think it was during the early 80s that we had this movement through um, education that just screamed out, if we just get kids to feel good about themselves, they'll learn so much more. So let's mindlessly, and nobody intended to say this, but let's mindlessly build self-esteem so that they'll learn mathematics. How'd that work? It doesn't work that way. You must become competent. If somebody doesn't know how to do a math equation, you can't compliment them into success. You can't say, you're so good at math, it's in you. No, it's when they have confidence that, look, I know you can solve the problem, I know you can work at it, let's do this. When they no longer have fear of failure, that it's okay to fail with the problem, and that it's gonna take work to do it, but you're gonna get through it. After a while, they'll actually succeed at doing the problem, and guess what they have? Skill. And that's something that you can say, all right, I get it, I got it. I can do mathematics. If we could just watch and listen to Peter's words and actions in the New Testament, you see this playing out. Only up until Pentecost, we see this Peter who's, who's just dragged from one moment to the next, and he's uncertain, and he's quiet. 
But when Pentecost comes and he speaks for God, when he goes um, into the courts and heals a man, when he speaks boldly and lives courageously on behalf of this Jesus, even being arrested for him, there we see the Peter that Jesus saw. And it's true, likely true that today, this is a call that some of us need to hear. A call to repent and turn from a destructive way, a treasured hatred, a stubborn habit, or a deliberate blindness that we choose, or even an apathy that we just justify because we're so smart. The good news is that the same Savior that stared Peter in the face and spoke these words looks to us with the same confidence, believing that when we wake up, we will grow. We will learn to function well. Do you believe this? Because it's not healthy to face your humanness unless you have the mercy of Christ looking directly at you like he is with Peter. It's just not healthy. It's problematic. Do you believe this? The fourth call to Peter is a call to reconstitute his life with love. I believe there comes a season in our lives when our motivation that which moves us to achieve goals and themes and stations in life. They lose their power and then something else comes in and motivates us. In, first, in, well, in John 21, 15, after the resurrection, we find Jesus with his disciples on a beach. And Jesus says to Simon Peter these words. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I say things. <laughs> you know that I don't always you don't always mean what I say, but you know. You know all things, and you know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus says. At this point, what Peter needs to possess most is not loyalty, not being right, not being skilled, not being respected, 
honored, trusted, or recognized. It's not about being smart or brave at this point. No, Peter has asked the question, Peter, do you love me? This seems to be one of the strangest conversations because Jesus rarely says, I love you. And I look throughout the Gospels and you can't really find a play, maybe one place where he declares it, but never directly to an individual. Maybe once. I love you. So he doesn't throw the phrase around. And if he doesn't throw the phrase around to other people, it's probably pretty important when he asks people to respond. Do you love me? Perhaps we throw that phrase around a little too much. I love chocolate. I love my wife, Julia. I love soccer. I love springtime. I love the color of the paint in the sanctuary. I got in trouble for loving the color of the paint in the sanctuary long ago. I was sitting in a boardroom and I voiced my joy over the dark color and this one woman disfellowshipped me personally by sitting three seats over. Never spoke to me again because of the color of the paint. But I love it. I love the way this place looks and sounds. And I love chocolate. I think I mentioned that. It's a word we just overuse, but in this case, when somebody asks directly, do you love me, it's different, isn't it? Three times. Some suggest that he asked Peter this three times because he's reconsecrating Peter to his original task, but I believe that He's reconstituting Jesus. Uh, Jesus is reconstituting Peter to the most salient, important part of life. And that is love. It's the motive and the method of Jesus' kingdom. Love for Jesus goes beyond the situational and beneath the cover of public perception. Love is to be Peter's new reference point and his part to play. You know, when we're growing up, there are things that we are taught to do, the things that we should do, tasks, habits. You should brush your teeth. You should pick up your clothes off the floor. And then after a while, those things that we should do become something that we want to do, hopefully. And then there are those things that we grow from the things that we want to do, or those are the things that we must do. Love is that thing that transcends should and is far and above our wants. It becomes this glorious imperative. We must do this. Peter's future was such that what he should do wasn't going to do the work of the gospel. He couldn't do it just because he was relatively responsible. It was too much to ask. 
Even if he wanted to do it, he wanted to stay and pray with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But you remember what Jesus said, why couldn't you stay awake? The Spirit is willing, but the, it's not enough to want to. Only one quality will move you forward to face what Peter had to face, to be crucified in Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake. Peter had only one motive to do that, and that was his love for his Savior. Do you hear this call to you today? Do you hear him asking you the question? Do you love me? Is that your operational reference point? Is that why you do what you do and where your work and life and joy, does it grow from love for Jesus? And finally, Jesus' call to Peter to be mindful of something new a new idea, perhaps. In Acts 10, we look deep into this passage. You'll see, wow, Peter's career as an apostle is just blossoming. And then another defining moment comes. During the time when the church was driven from Jerusalem, persecution was rampant, Peter receives a vision, a dream about animals, creatures. In Acts chapter 10, it says he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. That's some dream, isn't it? The message of the dream was also sent to Cornelius, a Gentile and a believer, which might have been a functional oxymoron in Peter's mind until now. Here's the new idea. Peter begins to speak and listen to his words. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Did you see it? I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. It's actually not really a new idea, is it? This notion of the Gentiles being part of the community. Isaiah 61, Isaiah 57, you look all the way through the Old Testament, you see evidence that was written into their very liturgy, into their um, theology, into their minds, into their call of Abraham, that this was to go to all nations. This place was be a place of prayer for all nations. There would be people who would love the Sabbath, and they would come in, and, and they would be outsiders. There are people out there that are meant to be right here. And they are just as faithful. And don't you know this, that God sends a vision to his Jewish apostle, and he sends it also to a Gentile. 
And throughout Scripture, the Gentiles get as many visions as the Jews do. Strange. But what's amazing is how he describes the learning process. You can have ideas and beliefs, but when it comes to playing them out and living them out, they become much more difficult to do. Very few people I know will say, I think racism is a good idea. Do you know anyone that will say that? Most people will denounce racism as immoral or at least moderately unfair. Most of those people will describe themselves as active opponents of racism. But Peter captures a defining moment more nuanced, but so pivotal, he says, I now realize how true this is. So you can understand, you can agree, you can even argue, you can support, you can protest, you can sacrifice for, but ultimately, are you willing to die for this truth? The range of knowing the truth is so dynamic from theoretical to actual experiential, moves from agreeing theoretically to embracing experientially this notion that the outsiders are in fact in already. It's just a matter of you opening your eyes and seeing it. What a new idea for Peter as he starts to approach his final days as a disciple, as an apostle. This storied moment in Peter's life is what I think many adults come to later on in life. Most old people I know are very much into grace. You wonder why. <laughs> They've seen too much. They know too much. Not here, but here and here. A maturity where you see better the things in life that are meant to have shades of gray and the things in life that are meant to be seen as either right or wrong. There is this clarity, sorry young people, they're better at it than you are. And seeing either right or wrong, good or bad, good or evil, they have a good grasp of that and also a firm glass, grasp of that which they don't know. So five callings defining moments of Peter's life that still speak to us today. A call, a new call, an idealistic call. And it may come to you in the ordinary flow of your life. Be looking. It may be a call to take on a task that will cause you to look long and hard at what will be said about you at the end of your days. One thing, I have compromised many things just for it to be said about me at the end of my days. I love Jesus and I love young people. That's all. That's it. But what will you say? What will be said about you? There is a call to something great at the end. Peter's call from failure and self-doubt to a new motivation, love. And then to think 
about what you're not thinking about, <laughs> to think and broaden your mind, to educate and to expand the capacity of your mind and your experience. These calls are extended to Peter, but I wonder if they're also calls that describe kind of the maturity of the Christian life too. The question um, that I have for you today is which call is speaking to you today? And what will be your answer? How will you respond to that call in your life?